Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2021 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Chris Oliver, archivist for the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability. Hi Chris, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about what you do at the hospital? Uh, yes, Faith, um, I would. Um, so my name is Chris Olver. I am the archivist at the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability. Um, my role has been, so I'm the first archivist here at the hospital, um, and I started in January 2018. And uh, since that day, the the aim of the service is to, to establish an archive service, which um, we are still in the process of undertaking, uh, but we have been uh, definitely helped through the contribution of the National Lottery Heritage Fund, who have um, currently funding us uh, to um, open up our archives uh, since uh, the start of 2019. And the project is ongoing until uh, November 2021. Okay, so if you're the first archivist, how do you spend an average day sort of getting this collection together ready for people to access? Basically, the the, the archive service was initially sort of founded by um, Sinead uh, Moriarty, who used to work in the fundraising department back in 2013. Um, and the National Archives actually came in and found out that our records were of national significance. And um, over the course of that period, um, it was decided to have a, um, to install a part-time um, permanent archivist, uh, which is when I started in 2018. Um, in terms of my day-to-day, um, it's it's very mixed because um, since um, 20, uh, well, since 2020, it's been non-stop um, National Lottery Heritage Fund uh, project. Uh, so uh, the first year of the project, we're very much focused on getting the archive up to sort of scratch to make it publicly accessible. So cataloging, conservation work, um, and digitization. And uh, pre-pandemic, we actually had a group of uh, really enthusiastic uh, volunteers on site who were doing a lot of the cleaning work um, of our permanent collection. Um, but Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, um, we had to stop uh, that work and um, a lot of the work had to be um, changed to be done remotely. Um, So in terms of my day to day at the moment, it's a real mixed bag, but I would mainly describe it as public engagement work. Um, We have an ongoing oral history project, which is documenting um, the COVID-19 stories of both our staff and patients um, at uh, at the hospital throughout this um, incredibly stressful time. Um, and we've recently trained some of our uh, remote volunteers who had been creating record summaries um, to, uh, to uh, uh, undertake um, oral histories themselves. Because uh, previously I was doing all the oral histories and um, uh, quite frankly, I was getting sick of my sound of my own voice, which um, must be the same for you, Faith. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, from the oral history work, we are also day to day. I'm also kind of focusing on preparing for an exhibition, which we are hoping to have at the hospital uh, in 
uh, July this year, uh, which will be both a physical exhibition based in the gardens of the hospital for um, patients, family and staff to be able to attend, um, but also on our website uh, to allow sort of, um, yeah, um, members of the general public to actually come and see and learn about sort of our heritage, um, but also to uh, showcase some of um, what's been happening at the hospital in the last year. Fantastic. I think I'll be really excited to engage not only the public, but the people who are actually resident of the hospital. Uh, Absolutely. Um, It's been one of the um, real, uh, well, one of the, great things about this kind of the funding um has it's allowed me to kind of work more hours last year I was, I was full time for the first time but actually engage with kind of uh patients so back in september we actually had a pilot um art workshop where um i in scrubs masks and and gloves went into the art room and um gave a presentation about kind of like the history of the hospital. And then we sort of talked a little bit about with, with patients, a patient group there about um, some of the, the origins of the hospital, but also um, looked at sort of duplicate material, which they could handle um, and actually kind of created a sort of art project based on the uh, historical material of the of the hospital so it was like design your own postcards because there's a really nice set of picture postcards um at the hospital from i think dating back from 1907 to 1922 which is at the start of we're still in the boom period of the picture postcard um but then go yeah I did a bit of research on picture postcards. It's actually quite a fascinating subject. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the hospital was founded in 1854, is that correct? Yes, yes, it was. So you uh, must have uh, quite an old collection. Um, it. I mean, it's quite old. It's difficult when it's, you know, comparing yourself to other archives because it's just like, say, you know, Bart's Hospital. It's yeah, like... Yeah. I think their oldest document is like 1100 or something. And I'm sure I'm getting that wrong by 200 years. Uh, But we're, yeah, we, what is very good about our hospital is, um, so to to say something about our origins, um, we have been around since 1854. Um, We were not always called the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability, uh, predominantly because neurodisability would have meant nothing to the Victorians. Um, we were used our first um official title was the royal hospital for incurables uh we were a voluntary hospital which was set up um to care for people who had uh chronic disability because back in uh the 1850s um there was no state provision for people with disability um if you were fortunate to be rich you could get sort of like a private nurse if you were unfortunate to be very poor then you would go into the workhouse uh but uh for a vast um well and even then uh that was not that was not great provision at all but 
basically there was no state provision. So it was all based on charity. So our founder, Reverend Andrew Reed, um, he, he set up a, this was his fifth big charitable institute. Um, it's, uh, yeah, he was a serial philanthropist, um, uh, which sounds awful. Um, but anyway, it's, he, he set up this institution um, back in 1854. And we, yeah, we were the first of our kind of hospitals, um, of incurable hospitals. Um, there are a few which are still going today. I think the only one off the top of my head I know of is, is the British Home, which is also in London. Uh, which used to be the British home for incurables. But um, there is around 13 or 16 of these hospitals. Majority of these hospitals join the NHS. But uh, we have always stayed independent. And for the most part, that was, um, it, it has allowed us to, to provide specialist care and rehabilitation services, which actually kind of are, very much have been for a long time, almost since the start of the NHS, incorporated into the national health um, structure. It is a very, it's a unique, um, it is a very unique institution. And I think um, how I usually describe it is, is that we are this Victorian institution, this institution for incurables, which... Um, is a very well is a very pejorative term and it is is one of the issues sometimes with with the difficulties of this archive service where you're dealing with um uh, clinical records from um a bygone era where some of the language is well very offensive but um from pretty much from the 1970s the the, the focus was very much on complex um, neurodisability. So where people nowadays associate the hospital with, say, locked-in syndrome or people recovering from strokes or car accidents, and that's that really is the major focus is on traumatic brain injury. And that that's it's almost a world away from, um, from the initial kind of uh, cohort of patients. Oh, so what type of material do you have in the collection that marked it as of national significance? Um, well, I wasn't there when he was going round. Um, sorry, he being um, the member of the National Archive, who I can't remember the name of. But um, I would imagine it would be the case of what was said well, one of the um, the great things is it's it's a it's a small archive. There's around three hundred standard size archive boxes. Um, so I think that's thirty three linear meters. But I'm always been very bad with my linear meter to box conversion. But um, we we basically have almost a, comp a complete run of certain um, record series. So our sort of um, administration records. So the house minutes, the committee minutes we have from 1854 to the present day, um, which doesn't sound that exciting on paper, but it's actually really, um, it, it's, 
it's really good because you can see the the change, um, at, say the treatment of disability over time, over this um, almost 170 year period. You can see how um, yeah how patients are treated for. There's there's seeing sort of like the different kind of um, like examples of patient voice and. Um, also in terms of sort of leisure and occupation what people were doing here, because for the most part, even though it's a hospital, this is not an acute setting. People come, came to the hospital because they had a chronic condition and um, people would, I think the longest stay was over 80 years. So you have people essentially living their, their life here. So it's, it's, it's a really kind of remarkable to be able to see um, to have this window into um, into sort of like the past of, of uh, disabled lives um, from yeah from from the nineteenth century. And you're still adding to the collection with oral histories, but do you have other content that you are adding, such as records? Uh, yes, I think in terms of the content which we're currently adding, um, so. We've been very fortunate because of the grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund to get um, quite a lot of our collection digitised. Um, and one of the reasons is for that is strategic. Um, by having more material digitised and available online, uh, then um, we can sort of like widen our access because, well, not only do are we in a pandemic in terms of the sort of the... Uh, reading room infrastructure on site um if if you could see a picture of of me here this is also the reading room and we have capacity for two researchers um and that was um before covid so now it would be one researcher um so actually having digitized collections is is fantastic it also opens up the collection for um our patients and residents here um because Again, physical access or um, being able to handle material and documents can be quite difficult without assistance. So having digitized images is fantastic. Um, in terms of um, our current uh, collection policy, um, for the most part, what we're getting is still things which are um, from internal sources, so other departments. Um, so... Uh, recently, I think, yeah, last week, actually, uh, we went, uh, I was summoned to a room in another outbuilding and we found lots of portraits of former, um, like big oil paintings of uh, former committee members um, with strange names like Lord Cave um, and also like a big room of sort of departmental files, which um, desperately needs uh, going through. So at the moment, that's what we're kind of uh, focusing on is just collecting all the historic papers, which are still around the hospital, but um, also actually kind of contacting other sort of like staff and uh, patients who potentially have um, taken material away because there was no um, resource for sort of like collecting historical papers. So that's, that really is kind of like the future goal is to kind of um, really kind of 
expand and become proactive in um, our collections uh, policy. Who accesses your collection at the moment? Who who do you welcome into your reading room? Who we have had in the past is kind of like because of the for the most part the collection had not been fully catalogued. We could not make it um, available to the public. So for the most part, the researchers we have had in have been um, internal. Um, but even then, it's been quite rewarding over the last two years to to welcome them into the archives. So we've had um, people from communication and fundraising, uh, basing sort of articles, uh, promoting our heritage uh, to our supporters network. Um, we've had uh, people... Uh, clinical staff who've who've been using the archives uh, for presentations for to get like historical context or of their roles like speech and language therapists um, and finally I think and yeah my, my favorite was kind of like um, some of people from the financial department came in and just wanted access to sort of like the old financial records going back 120 years, I think they were kind of, because we still have some some investments and bequests, which are, are really historical. Um, so, and I, I find that kind of fascinating to see kind of where sort of like where money was invested in, in, in this charity, because prior to, um, well, at least until the Second World War, almost every year everything was this this entire medical charity was always funded by donations and bequests so it was it, it's really interesting to almost kind of follow, follow the money trails um i'd also say that in terms of although that's we've had fairly few physical visitors um we do get quite a lot of remote inquiries from uh, people looking into family history of um for their uh, for potential sort of like for former relatives who who came to the hospital or we're also uh finding um academics especially people in medical humanities who are kind of very interested in sort of um the history of disability and the history of medicine so it's 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 sort of as you'd expect from a medical archive but um, yeah, it'd be really great to actually kind of get some of those remote um, inquirers here in person. Who do you anticipate or who do you hope will access your collection when it's been digitised and there's wider access available? Um, it's the same as the people who are already kind of curious about kind of the archives, I think. it's Ideally, it would be a case of kind of widening participation so um once things are sort of fully catalogued and digitized then it's a case of trying to build um our audiences um well first off getting the traditional kind of archive users or family historians and academics in um but then really what we're trying um two of the other sort of um groups i would like to attract to the archives um are are sort of like local school children because i think there's a lot in this archive which is quite um interesting and actually kind of fits into sort of like the national curricula so we have 
Letters from Florence Nightingale and um, Charles Dickens was an early supporter. So it's um, there's a lot of kind of like Victoriana around uh, the collection, but also for them to learn about the lives of sort of disabled lives in the uh, 19th and 20th century. Um, I would also the the other group is is um, is patients and residents. Um, so I've already kind of mentioned how we. Um, have started working with patients and residents for uh, with the art workshops, but we're also trying to incorporate um, sort of, we're also recording oral histories with them and sort of um, we actually got uh, a song about COVID recorded as well, which we hope to sort of um, use in the um, ex- forthcoming exhibition as well. Um, so I think that's, that's the really kind of the two kind of growth areas and it's whether sort of trying to sort of appeal to, to, to those researchers. I, well, through those audiences by, by going to them and doing uh, various public engagement events or just maybe creating online resources for, for those, those people. So you just mentioned a letter from Florence Nightingale and then ubiquitous Charles Dickens, who was a big fan yeah. of social endeavours such as the Royal Hospital. But what is your sort of favourite item that really appeals to you? Um, yeah, it, don't get me wrong. Charles Dickens and Florence Nightingale are great, um, but a lot of people can... Um, have links to Charles Dickens and Florence Nightingale. And I think for me personally, there's, I'm, I think it is actually kind of going back to kind of the uh, committee minutes because there's so many of them and it's, it can be quite, um, it can be quite difficult sometimes to access because um, they're handwritten and some of the sort of the, handwriting can be difficult to read but it's it's so worth pursuing because even the snippets that I found are just sometimes delightful so I mean one of the the stories which is quite um it's quite interesting is during the first world war we had um some of our porters uh I think in 1917 were sacked because they were uh, the steward uh, decided to sack them because they were conscientious objectors and uh, you know so basically abstained from going to war and there was such a hoo-ha about this like patients uh, were in uproar and sort of like wrote to the board to get them reinstated um, so you had all this kind of going on all these reports and they actually were rehired and the board ended up sacking the steward because because there was like such a kind of protest about this action. Um, other times it's kind of like really sort of small little incidences as well, where um, like a little note that sort of, I think in the 1880s, that sort of like the London and Brighton Railway, um, they created a special carriage uh, to actually kind of for our de- disabled patients, because even then most of our patients were in wheelchairs. Um, and so a special carriage to go on the railway back down to uh, St. Leonard's where the um, the hospital had a, a seaside home at that time. 
Um, and then, yeah, I mean, then finally there's just some really strange ones, like, like, at a, like a heading called like bees and it's just like a matron sort of like one of our former matrons died and um her husband kind of gave her bees to the hospital and then it's just like you don't they're, they're gratefully received but then you never hear anything else about these bees and it's yeah um so that there's there's a few things um but there's a there's a lot else as well i i mean i feel I should say because it's a max communication podcast, like the videos. Um, so we had some 16 um, millimeter sort of reel to reel films, which were adverts and um, adverts and sort of presentations about the hospital from the 1970s. And I, I've seen some previews and they're fantastic. So you've got like Queen Elizabeth II visiting. Um, and it really kind of goes into kind of like the work of the hospital and like interviewing patients. Um, it also has this really elaborate um, fire safety video, which was personalized for the hospital, um, which is such a kind of weird kind of Easter egg to have. Um, but yeah, there's there's an awful lot of things which I think I'm very... I'm I'm a massive fanboy of, of of my own archives. So yeah. Well, I mean that's the best way best way to work, isn't it? <laughs> Just like you've got some real gems. Um. Yes. No. I. Well. I. I hope to be. Uh. Yeah. Proved right on that. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So how far through the digitization pro- process are you? Well, essentially, uh, what we we we've been doing is. Uh, we've been doing two types of digitization. So we've been doing external digitization, which is based on um, material which was um, essentially we could not do in-house. So it was either oversized or um, a particularly kind of vulnerable. So we just didn't have the equipment. So say glass slides or medical case books. Um, so all that material has been completely digitized. It's just um, now is the process of uh, quality control and spot checking all the thousands of images um, and then uploading it onto our archive catalog, which is um, where possible. Because uh, again, it's it's making sure that the, the images are of sufficient quality to be able to sort of like upload um, onto onto that catalog. In terms of our other sort of digitization, we are doing internal digitization, which is halfway through. Um, and this this was a legacy of our original kind of bid for, from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, where we wanted to uh, employ uh, volunteers to select uh, photographic material to be scanned and put onto our catalog. Um, Unfortunately, because it was not possible to have volunteers working on site anymore, um, we've actually um, changed the project to um, hire a digitization assistant to come in and scan selected, well, material selected material by myself for the website. And I think we, the, yeah, the uh, the plan is to do four thousand images, and we're halfway there at this point. Oh, 
are they available online for people to see yet or are they all going to be uploaded at once they they are not available at the moment uh, but they will be uploaded um i think hopefully it will be yeah later in 2021 uh they will be all available when is your exhibition is that going to be what form is that going to take online yes so the exhibition the best way to see the exhibition would be to visit our website uh which is um www.rhn.org.uk um, and what we have is that we've got dedicated heritage pages already on our website um, so the um, online exhibition will be an add-on to those pages um, in terms of the physical exhibition what we are hoping to do is from July to September to have um, a outside exhibition so we have uh these a0 poster boards uh which we were going to canvas boards which we're going to prop up around the um the rhn's gardens which incidentally were have been here since the gardens actually are older than the the mansion they're 18 some of the gardens from the 18th century it's um uh capability brown is, is did some of the landscape gardening around here so that which is a real shame because it's kind of like it'd be great to get people to come to the hospital but we're still not too sure if we will be able to cater for external visitors even in our grounds so um i would say at the moment yeah um sort of see see our twitter page for details but um hopefully it might be possible later in the year to uh welcome people actually to the hospital too yeah things are changing so fast all the time aren't they yes yes they are well thank you for taking time to talk to us today chris it's been a real delight hearing about what what exciting things you're uncovering in your archive i think as you say some of the language is maybe a bit outdated, but the concept of looking after people with chronic conditions is actually quite forward-looking, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that in terms of the one thing which we have a continuity about is, I guess, understanding of kind of care. We we've always been seen as a hospital, but but it, from the earliest days, it's always been kind of like giving being more of a home to people and trying to sort of use the best possible sort of technology and services to make life as amenable as possible and i i think um i think it it is one of those things which is just kind of um is really inspiring to to work in an institution um like that and um uh certainly it's kind of like i think you know, where, yeah, if you're an archivist, it's it's kind of, it's great to be able to kind of have a collection which you kind of, is such a, a worthy cause, um, but a fascinating cause as well. Um, sorry, that's that's my spiel. <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing more of it as you digitise it and then we be, can become as big fans as you are. <laughs> Good. Yes. No, I hope so. It's 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 lonely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, I'll keep you company. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.